0: Welcome to Control the Controllables. I'm Dan Kiernan from Soto Tennis Academy in Spain, and we've teamed up with Max Tennis Academy in Ireland. We've brought this podcast together to entertain, educate, and energize the tennis community through the different lenses of the sport that we love. From Grand Slam champions to those at grassroots level, from sports journalists to backroom staff, Our aim is truly to get under the bonnet of the tennis world at all levels. So sit back and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 140 of Control the Controllables. Firstly, I'd just like to welcome any new listeners to the show. If this is your first time listening to the podcast Control the Controllables, welcome, enjoy this episode and please Do take a look at the other 139. If you are a regular listener, a big thank you to you all for for continuing to come back for for the constant reach-outs that you have with us here at Control the Controllables. It's greatly appreciated. There's been so many messages that we've picked up that have been consistent throughout these podcasts. And one of the messages... Is very clear that no one person has the same journey and every person has their own challenges.
1: Probably the toughest time of being a pro is feeling like, you know, feeling like you're good enough at times and you know you can do it, but you're just not able to produce it consistently. That was the challenge for me.
0: So, Rajiv Ram, who had his highest career ranking in singles of 56 when he was age 32. He won his first Grand Slam title, age 35. And here he is now as a 37-year-old with four Grand Slam titles to his name. He's the world number four doubles player, playing alongside British player Joe Salisbury, currently the second best team in the world. And he was also an incredibly high-level junior. So he has been going at this for 24 years in terms of being an international tennis player. As you can imagine, there's a lot of knowledge, there's a lot of wisdom, there's a lot of stories to tell, and and he, Rajiv certainly does that to an extremely high level. I love talking to him, you will love listening to him. Here is Rajiv Ram. So Rajiv Ram, a big welcome to Control the Controllables. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing great, thanks so much for having me.
0: You know, thank you for coming on. And, and just at the start, just to say, well done. Another, another great week for you and Joe in, in Vienna. And, you know, you keep chipping away this year. What a, what a fantastic year you guys are putting together.
1: Yeah, it was definitely a nice way to start our indoor season. You know, we got uh, four matches in, played another final. Unfortunately, it didn't quite go our way, but uh, feeling good about where we're at. And, um, you know, the rest of the, the couple of tournaments we have left.
0: And the, and the demographic, Rajiv, of this podcast is, is I guess, well, it's the tennis community. Uh, it's, it's about 55, 60% Brits. You know, we right. do more and more. I think we're about 15, 20% U.S. now, and then there's another 120 countries around the world. Uh, but you seem to be a bit of an adopted Brit now. I saw the picture, <laughs> Joe, Rob Morgan, and I saw Justin Sharon was there as well last week. So are you getting used to this British banter by now?
1: Yeah, I have a, a lot of a lot of British time I do these days. That's for sure. Uh, but it's great. Like we all get along really well, and uh, you know, Justin's uh, someone who doesn't travel with us much. Just uh, you know, he's Joe's coach from when he was a kid, so he comes around when he can. And Rob's with us all the time. So uh, yeah, it's it's great. We have a great time with it.
0: And and we'll we'll get into that partnership a little bit later, Ajiv. But I I think the way that I I like to go on on these episodes is is looking at the tennis journey. Everyone's got a different journey in sport. And we've, you know, had a lot of journalists. We've had we've had agents. We've had data analysts. So many different routes you can go. Well, you now, age 37, has just been pure tennis playing for, for many, many years. So where where did all of that start?
1: Um, you know, tennis is funny for me because it's not something that was ever pushed on me or, or uh, you know, just a feeling that I had to be a professional or anything like that. It was... Uh, it started out as a, a hobby um, I would you know I was an active kid I enjoyed playing a lot of sports I was better at tennis than the rest of the sports for whatever reason and um, you know when I started to show a lot of interest my dad uh, would come home from our work every day and we'd go out to the local court um, or the local club and and we would just play and it just kind of it was our father son activity that we did every day we spent time together and uh, it really evolved from there it was never something that was planned or or thought of as being a, a career, which is, I guess, maybe a bit strange.
0: And do you think that's also why you're still playing, why you've played for so long? Because it it there's maybe not that scar tissue that's been built up over the years that I think those that are, are pushed into it, those that receive that challenging feedback and almost don't represent the sport to be something of fun, then makes it something that it's hard to hard to do so long into your adult life?
1: I think you hit the nail on the head when you said it that can make it not fun. And I think maybe you can still do it, you know, to a, a later age, later, quote unquote, later age, like I'm doing it. But I think you struggle to have as much fun with it as I do. And I think that's one thing that I'm probably the most grateful to my upbringing for is that, you know, even at this point, even after I've been on tour for so many years and played and whatever, it's still enjoyable for me to go out and play. And I think that's just because of how it started for me. It started as something I did for fun and it, it still continues to be that.
0: And that's, and that does, whenever I, whenever I watch you Rajiv, and I've watched a lot of you over the years and that was something I wanted to ask you, it, you look so relaxed. You know, you look mm. so chilled, you know, you look, Is is are you like that on the inside as well? Or have you just got a good way of, of showing the outside world that?
1: I mean, yeah, look, it definitely, I'm definitely not like that inside in, you know, matches and competitive situations, especially big matches or whatever. But uh, I think there are a lot of the times, you know, whether it be on the practice court or or in such other situations where that is sort of my demeanor, you know, I I do enjoy what I do and, enjoy learning and i enjoy trying to get better and i I enjoy the process of it and i think um you know even though it's not like that when you're competing and you're out there to win i think that attitude has helped me enjoy sort of the work of it um which you know leads me to keep improving um and and keep trying to find ways to get better
0: and you're still trying to get better age 37
1: Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, I think the minute I stop trying to get better or I don't feel like I want to anymore, I'm, I'm going to find another job, I think, because uh, that that is that's it for me. It's just that sort of pursuit of trying to continuously, you know, improve one little thing here or there that could maybe help you along the way, because that that part's the really fun part for me.
0: And that's that's the growth mindset bit, isn't it? You know, and I think you, you hear quite a few. 16-year-olds, I'll, I'll hear it around the world when I'm traveling at tournaments that you can't improve technique after a certain age. And, you know, once you get to the, this is what you've got and it's so fixed mindset, it's so lovely to hear that someone who's had so much success has been on the tour for so long has still got that open growth mindset.
1: Yeah, I think, uh, well, geez, at 16 years old, if you think you've got what you got, I think that's a, definitely a mistake. Uh, I think you can always... Learn things. Maybe, you know, certain things are a bit difficult to change or, or completely revamp. Like at 16, I was never going to have a one in a two in a backhand anymore or something like that. But there's certainly so the subtleties of the game and maybe even a bit more than that that you can work on forever.
0: And that brings me into anyone in the tennis world knows you as Ramprous. And yeah. you know the, the technique that, that we've seen, and I do, I'm I'm a few years older than you, but certainly seeing you seeing you come through, it was very clear that you your game does look like the 14-time Grand Slam champion Pete Sampras. Is that an accident? Is that something that was was your inspiration that you had that visual as you started to play? How how did that come about?
1: Yeah. Well, look, obviously I'd be completely lying to you if I said it was an accident. So that that's not the case. Um, I, as I said, I didn't have a coach. My tennis was something I did with my dad who wasn't a tennis player um, by any stretch other than, you know, sort of a a recreational type of player. So we did it together. So I didn't have anyone teaching me that had any real um, in-depth sort of experience with the game uh, until much, much later until I was about 15 years old. So wow. 14, 14 years old or so. Yeah. So my formative years were completely watch and learn. And, um, you know, my dad was a tennis fan and enjoyed watching players who played a certain style, came forward, you know, did well on quicker surfaces. That was just sort of what we liked to watch me too. And, uh, Pete was pretty good at that. And we, we say, my dad kind of said, look, this guy's pretty good. Why don't we, why don't you try and play like him? And, um, and that was sort of that it wasn't very complicated other than that. I, my first, my first true tennis hero was Boris Becker. Um, and then, you know, growing up in America, I had a, a generation of, of great American players to look up to. And, you know, his Pete Sampras' style sort of fit the way I like to play a bit more. And I tried to, I tried to do as best as I could to, to play like him.
0: You've got to be quite gifted as well, though, to be able If I tried to do Sampras' to serve now, I, I, I couldn't <laughs> do it. You know, so you've got, to, you, you've got to have a talent to be able to, to copy that as well.
1: Yeah, it, it, I gotta say, it is a knack that I have to what I can usually mimic people even now pretty well. Right, that don't, okay. yeah. So, yeah, for whatever reason, I, I probably have a bit of a bit of talent. Let's say in that area,
0: we need to have a podcast live yeah. and an audio, and we need to get people to send in all of the all of the different impressions yeah. that you've got to do. You know, that would be yeah. that yeah. would be very cool. But that when when I was looking through Rajiv one thing that hit me and it and it's just hit me now as, as we're talking you were good young so you you within the U.S. you know and if you're winning national titles in the U.S. certainly in your day you know against the competition that you had you know and for you to be able to do that without any formal coaching is mm-hmm. is it is incredibly impressive you know so and then almost to link that to you saying it was, it was always just fun, you were never really thinking about playing pro. Was there a point as you started to have that national success that maybe certain outside pressures came in and, and you started to think, actually, this is something that I can see myself making a living out of?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Look, I started to have kind of my some success, like you're saying, in the US around 14 years old and still tennis was it was always going to be an avenue to improve my educational opportunities, let's say, you know, and it was, yeah, that's what I thought would happen. I thought I would get a chance to go to schools that maybe I wouldn't get to before. And I was lucky enough to get all those opportunities. And then uh, so 14, 15, 16, I kept playing and, and won a decent amount, like you said. And then right then about 16, 17, I, I felt like I started to really get a lot better. Like I was yeah. fitter. I was enjoying working. I was really feeling like every day I would go out there and something would be better. And I'm not, I wasn't even sure why, you know, it was just like, yeah. I, I just, I just kind of got it a little bit more. Um, and so right about then it was a time when I started thinking, man, if this continues for a, a decent amount of time, like I, I could become pretty good at this, you know? And yeah. I, I started thinking about, Right around then, my seven around seventeen or so, I decided I was you know I wanted to try and make a living out of it. I was still going to go to college, but any decision I made for college was going to be based on what was best for my tennis. It wasn't going to be about okay, let's think about you know play for four years and then do something else. It was going to be I'm going to go to college, but I'm going to go to a place where I felt like I could uh, better improve my my game. And and the decisions I made were going to be around that. And I was going to keep wasn't committed to being a pro right away, but let's see where it, you know let's see where it got me.
0: And the, the one that comes up, and this is episode 140 of this podcast, so we've had so many amazing stories from Yabona Choriches, who you know, was, was there from a very young age, to Jamie Murray, to Dominic Kopfer, who hardly played yeah. tennis up until 16. You know, there's, there's so many different ways that it goes. And, and, I, and I think one of the arguments or one of the discussions that I think is very interesting is, does a successful junior career help or hinder you know, does it give you the confidence in the inner belief to then be able to go on and have a successful career? Or does it build expectation and and, and different outside challenges? F- from your point of view, what's your take on that?
1: I think it's it's one thing that I say in tennis, that there's the only never is that there's a never. And the only always is that there's, there's, you know, there's, there's not going to be an always, you know, it's everyone's different. Everyone's going to yeah. be, everyone's going to have a different path, a different mindset, a different, you know, a different way to look at things, a different way to react to things. And so some people, if they have a great junior career, that's going to mean they're going to have confidence and just keep riding it into a great pro career. If some people may feel like you said, the pressure and the expectations and kind of revert back and kind of go into a shell or whatever. So I think that's where it's so important for kids who want to play and want to be successful to, to really, if they can surround themselves with the right people who have the best interest in them to kind of guide them as individuals and not say, Oh, well look, you know, Andy Roddick did it this way, but you know, Roger Federer did it this way. And Serena Williams did it this way. Like, no, it doesn't matter. I mean, you can have little tidbits, maybe a little bit of help. It'll take some knowledge from that. But at the end of the day, everyone's an individual, you know, and, that, and yeah. that's it.
0: And who were the most influential people around you at that time and in your junior career?
1: Yeah. I mean, I was really lucky to be surrounded by some people who really cared about me and my, my, you know, my six, not my success, but my uh, best interest, have my best interest. Um, one guy named Brian Smith, who's uh, still my coach today from back home in Indiana. We don't, I mean, not anything, was never a professional, was never, he, played a, he was a college player at Ball State University, but yeah, somebody that really looked after me and, and looked to try and put me in touch with people who he thought would be you know my best interest, and you know the the, the first and foremost for my parents. Um, they just yeah. uh, you know, they kind of led me to the right people, and then let them do their thing. Never kind of interfered when it wasn't their place, and all that. Just tried to you know place me around people that you know they felt like would look after me.
0: And I would imagine that that college decision was quite a big decision as well, because someone of 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 your profile at that time i would imagine had a lot of the a lot of the big schools being an american you know be you know having having the level that you had first question and i guess two questions together rajiv why did you go to college firstly and how did you pick Illinois, when I guess at that time, your Stanford's, UCLA's, USC's were probably the bigger pulls for an American junior like yourself.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's funny you ask. It, it, it was a big decision and it wasn't. I mean, it was the most clear decision I ever made. Um, Illinois was, you know, the at the time, the best coach, in my opinion, the yep. best team, given who they had. Okay. They didn't have the proven stats of the of school, schools you mentioned, but they had the best team. It was so cool to potentially think about being a part of something new and something upcoming that, you know, would sort of change the landscape of college tennis. It was close to home for me. It was two hours from where I grew up. So the people that I was around before that I felt like had such an impact could still be around as opposed to going all the way out to California, which that wasn't going to happen. And it was full of a bunch of kids that I already knew. I mean, it was, it was all Americans on the team that I'd, I'd played every single player on that team before even getting to college. So it was like, there was no kind of like getting to know anyone. I, I just, it, it just felt like I fit right in um, with the group that was there. And it, I took all my visits and I did all the recruiting stuff, but it was one of the easiest decisions I ever made.
0: And and for, for those listening, that's Craig Tiley, who was the coach at, at University of Illinois at, the, at that point, who, who has been on the podcast. So go back and, and listen to that episode, which is an incredible episode to listen to as well. And he told the story, Rajiv, of you know speaking to the AD and and saying, "I'm going to win the NCAA championship in ten years," and yeah. you know what I'm going to do it with all American guys as well, you know. And and, yeah. he, and he, he it was obviously a very bold statement. Craig seems like a guy who gets what he wants eventually. You know, he, he finds a way. What what was it about Craig that made him so influential and to to be able to? bring that team together and so obviously he was able to persuade you to be part of that as well
1: yeah he's not making that up either that was a true story can you believe that I mean Illinois was the worst team in the Big Ten and he went, went to the AD and said look in 10 years I'm going to win the NCAAs and everyone around thought he was an absolute idiot I think it was 11 years that we won it from the time that he said that so he was one year late but uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll let him off <laughs> what, what made it? What made him what made him for me that way was like you said firstly he, he did it with all people, he didn't have to like go, not to say that having foreign players in college tennis is bad because I don't think it was at all, but it was his goal and his way that he was going to show that you could still do this with American players. So from the beginning, he had mostly Americans on his team. So the fact is that I knew a lot of the people that he uh, recruited and my coach, Brian played at ball state, played against a lot of Craig's teams and, and he knew a lot of the players as well. And just seeing what the players were like when they went to school and what they were like when they came out of school was every single guy to a man had improved tremendously. Now that doesn't mean that any of them were going to be professional players, but if he could do that with that level of player to turn him into, you know, a high school player to a decent college player, that kind of thing. I mean, I just felt like that was enough proof for me that he was going to work his butt off to make me the best player I could be, which hopefully was going to be a successful professional. And um, it didn't really see that anywhere else. I saw that, you know, occasionally a guy would improve a lot and, you know, do okay from another school, but also you'd have guys that would get worse after four years. And, and that never seemed to happen at Illinois. Nobody ever got worse. So yep. for me, that's, that's something to do with, with what the coaches got going on for sure.
0: And winning an NCAA championship, I was fortunate to make a couple of Final falls and just fall short. I won't give my sob story on air. <laughs> uh, we had a we had an extremely tight one with UCLA one year. But for the listeners who, you know, some of them will have been to college. Some of them will be looking to go to college. Some of them will see college as uh, a failure because you haven't gotten to play a professional, which we've talked a lot about on the podcast, how wrong that is. What was that experience like to win an NCAA championship?
1: Right up there with anything else I've ever done in tennis. Um, I've been lucky to do some cool things, but winning on a team with a bunch of guys that you've known since you were a kid, you know, in a situation like Illinois, where we didn't have, you know, we didn't have the, the pedigree or whatever. We didn't have 20 national championships behind us like Stanford. I mean, we were trying to be one, you know, one of a few that, uh, yeah, it, w- it was really rare for anyone to win anything at Illinois, and, and I think we we won in 2003, and the the one before that was men's gymnastics won in 1989. So I mean, it was just wasn't normal for Illinois to win NCAA titles. So, yeah, it was it was incredible. And Then we had an un- undefeated season, and and the whole the whole way we, that it happened was definitely one of the, if not the coolest thing I've done in tennis.
0: Where was that finals played?
1: It was in in Georgia. Athens, oh, Georgia. So the place, yeah. I mean, that's the place. The place. Where it's happened. Yeah. Yeah. The only thing that would have been cooler was if we had done it at home, I think, but yeah, having it be at Athens was pretty neat.
0: Yeah. And if uh, that, that for me, Athens for me is the home of college tennis when it comes to, when it comes to those events. I would agree with that. You know, and then what, what an incredible, and then, so if I've got this right, you then left.
1: Yeah. So if I could, honestly take one decision back in my tennis career it would be that i think okay. at the time i was 19 years old we just had this incredible season you know college tennis wasn't going to get any better for me because we won you know my partner and i won the doubles our teammate won the singles we literally swept the whole thing and i was 19 going to be 20 and not that long and at the time it was 2003 so you know tennis careers if they went past 30 it was a bit of a bluff like tennis career didn't go past 30 so i was thinking to myself man done everything I've ever wanted to do in college tennis and I, you know, now it's kind of time to do this or not do this because I would have 10 years to play on tour and that would probably be it. If you'd have told me back then that, Hey, listen, at 37, you're still going to be playing and playing just fine and feeling good. I would have definitely stayed another year or two because I think it would have really helped my tennis game, but it was sort of a a decision at the time, given all the information that I had. And that was what I chose.
0: And were you Given a pro contract, were you signing contracts at that point? Did you start having agents that were 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 getting money off of different clothing companies and clothing brands, or did you just take the leap of faith yourself?
1: It was a bit more of a leap of faith for sure. Uh, mm-hmm. At the time, also it was kind of like if you went to college, then that all that stuff kind of went out the window. And I didn't, to be honest, I didn't have much of that anyway, even before I went to school. So it was a bit of a leap of faith. My parents, you know, had the support. In, I Sorry, I had my parents' support a bit financially. um, And I was lucky enough to kind of do okay right from the beginning with some opportunities and also just some results. So, yeah, but it wasn't something where I was, you know, able to hire my own coach and my own team to travel around and do it straight away. No, it wasn't like that.
0: And when you left college, of two questions, and I'll ask one and and give you the time to answer it, did you have the level – when you left college to be a top 200 ATP player at that time,
1: mm, oh, that's a long time ago. Um, I would say no. At that time, no, I didn't have the level to be top 200. No, did not. You have- stri- I mean, I could, I could, I could beat people in the top 200 pretty regularly. But to go a whole season and be end of the year top 200, I would say probably not. No.
0: Did you have the belief that you could be a top hundred player at that stage?
1: At that stage, I did. Yes. At yeah. that stage, I did. I would say it got tested in the following years, in the years following that pretty yeah. rigorously. But at that stage, I did believe that, yeah. Oh.
0: Yeah, because, I, I, and again, one of the quite consistent things coming through this this show is that really there's six or seven years in the transition part. You either in that six or seven years make your way through, so you're playing mm-hmm. your Grand Slams, or it's very difficult grinding out the futures the challenges to be able to be able to do it and i think that kind of fits with yourself a little bit because if i'm correct i believe you broke top 100 as a singles player 2009 yeah so 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 it took you 6 years 6 years to get there how yep. how, how was that journey what were the challenges of that journey and were there any times where you thought you know what i'm not sure this is for me
1: for sure there was, there it was probably the toughest time of being a pro Was feeling like, you know, feeling like you're good enough at times and you know, you can do it, but you're just not able to produce it consistently. That was the challenge for me. Like, yeah. why can I do this some of the times and why? And, and then like, it just is, it's not there all the time or not even all the time, but just like the majority of the time. Cause I just knew that wasn't my level didn't need to get me better in the terms of what I had. It just needed to be able to show up more often, you know, and feeling like. Yeah, that was difficult. That was difficult. And I remember one time specifically, I was in Tulsa just thinking, yeah, you know what? I think it was like 2007 or eight. I can't remember the year exactly or six or seven, I don't, whatever it was. A couple of years into it, where it's like, you know, you just keep on playing these challengers and one after the next. And my ranking was anywhere between 150 and 250 consistently for that time period. And it's like, I'm not quite sure why it's not, why I can't, you know, make that next step because I feel like my level's there. It is there at times, just not enough. And yeah it's it's a, it's a tough go for sure that's when you your your love of the game gets tested I'll say that
0: But is that also where I, I talk to players a lot about this where we we all have a range of level you know so we've got a bad day we've got an average day we've got a good day and mm-hmm. and if I take you and I remember this match I remember watching you play Varinka at US Open and mm, it was Yeah. 7-5 in the fifth does. Yeah so it was,
1: that was in 2005, that was one yeah. of my first US Open, my first U.S Open, I'm pretty sure. yeah. Right.
0: So, so that shows that your top level, if that was a really good day, I assume it probably was quite a good day, you know was, was in and around, You know has the capability. But I think, I think a lot of players are searching for, for that top level. You know, and that ability to play at their top level where we, we now know as we're old and we've been around this game a long time that it's actually the average level that, that turns, into, turns into our ranking. You know, so how, how were you able to work on, on bringing that average level forward, which ultimately took you to 56, 57 in the world? So, you know, that's one thing I think the listeners need to understand about Rajiv Ram. He, he's not just one hell of a doubles player. He also is one hell of a singles player, you know, to get to 56 in the world. So how were you able to work through to getting that consistency and bringing your average level up?
1: why I was one l of a singles player i'm not anymore yeah okay (laughs) we'll be very very clear about very clear about that i have no Yeah, i can't even be joe these days but no i'm kidding but um no yeah you're exactly right on that it's got your ranking has nothing to do with your top level in this game absolutely zero it's got to do with the level that you can bring you know every single day that you can count on to be there and then maybe one or two days it doesn't show up okay those are your bad days and one or two days you play ahead of it that's your good days but your average level is it and you mentioned Stephen Amritharaj, who was a real good friend of mine earlier when we were talking. And I think he, that it was 2009. I remember, I'll never forget. We were in California at a challenger and I lost a match to someone. I can't—I don't remember who it was, but it just played terribly. And he sat me down and he was like, look, I'm watching you play. And, you know, I've known you since you were 13, 12 years old when we first met. he's like, you're just totally not playing any of the, the, the type of tennis that's intuitive to you or instinctive to you. and we had a long conversation about it and, you know, and he just gave me as a friend, a few ideas. Cause he could really see that I was struggling a few ideas on what he thought I should do and what I, th- I thought I should play, how he thought I should play and, and, and kind of take the, the game, make, make the game a bit more simple and, 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 you know, take it back to the things that I knew how to do well, which was, you know, come in a bit, play maybe a bit more high risk, not play the way that everybody else is playing in that time period, even though it's very difficult to do. And he's like, this is obviously not working. You should try something else because more, more than anything, he doesn't look like, he's like, you don't look like you're having any fun with this, you know, yeah. out there. And so that year, you know, he started traveling a bit with me and his cousin Prakash. And all we did was just kind of think about how'd, how'd you play when you were 14? What would you do in this situation when you were a teenager? Well, okay. I would do this. I would chip and charge a lot more. I'd serve and volley on a second serve on a break point. I would, you know, hit drop volleys and do different things that, you know, use my hand skills, use different things, not run side to side on the baseline, trying to hit the ball as hard as I could, you know, use my timing a bit more, use the things that I know I'm good at. And um, another thing we talked so much about is schedule a bit differently. Don't play the tournaments where the conditions don't suit you play travel a bit more. It doesn't have to be in the U S doesn't have to be, you know, certain places go find places that are conducive to your style that, you know, are against players that you enjoy playing against. And so we, we talked about a whole variety of things that, people don't realize that tennis is all about, you know, it's not just about the guy that's on the other side of the net all the time. When you're trying to be a professional and you know, how can we, how can we sort of stack the deck in, in my favor a little bit more in a time period when it was very stacked against me. Um, and uh, yeah, and that's sort of, that's sort of how it happened. And we t- took it back to things that I could count on. Like we said, you know, that, that I could bring a certain level of a certain game style every day. And where could, how could we make that work?
0: That's a great, that's a really good story, Rajiv. And, and I think, and and then you went on that year to break top hundred. So you went on a yeah. bit of a run. You won Newport that year, but it was, was it, did you win Newport to become top hundred?
1: I did. I did. I believe. Yeah, I did. And part of that was exactly what we were talking about. That court and that surface fit nobody else. It fit someone who played like they probably should have been playing in the 1980s, which was me. And, uh, you know, because of the way that I had tried to been the things I was working on, the, the way I was trying to play, it fits so well into being, you know, a viable option to play on a court like that. And I went out and I, I played great. I played great for five matches and, you know, was able to win it and nobody could take that away from me. You know, I, I want to, I won a title on the ATP tour. Yeah. Okay. It wasn't maybe the biggest title or it wasn't, you know, something else, but it was done because of the, you know, of what I could do well and, and the things that I did and, and the way we worked up until that point.
0: And breaking top hundred in our sport is it's the holy grail, for for what reason I don't know, but it, it, it's it's obviously it's it's a it's a benchmark that's set. How how was that feeling when you when you have finally had double figures next to your name?
1: Yeah, it was pretty special, just because, like you said, for whatever reason, I don't I don't really know why. Maybe it's because you get direct acceptance in the Grand Slams. Maybe it's just because that's sort of like when everybody sort of um acknowledges you as a, as a successful professional but yeah it, it was the goal of mine since the beginning is you know that was the first five six years of my career it took me to, to break that goal and so it was pretty special and then also just to do it with a win you know like with a win yeah. at the tour level it wasn't like it was like okay a quarter a quarter and a semi it was like no i, I got all the way through this tournament and you know that was pretty cool too
0: now the double double celebration which is all which is always nice
1: yeah exactly
0: and a question, little quiz question for you. On the ATP Tour and Grand Slam level events, how many matches did you win in your career as a singles player?
1: Not, not many. I don't know off the top of my head. I'm, I'm going to guess 40.
0: And how many did you lose?
1: A lot more than that. Twice as many, 80 maybe.
0: Yeah, so, so you, your ratios are spot on, but it's 57 and 93
1: okay and, there you and go.
0: And, and why I, I like this is not to put you down because you've had an incredible career but i think for people listening you know someone who has been as high as 56 in the world we haven't even got to your amazing doubles career yet but as as a singles player 157 matches at that level and lost 93 we are we are in a losing sport you know, we're in a sport where we lose a lot. We we lose a lot of matches. We, we lose a lot of points. You know, I always love the one like Rafa's lost 44, 45% of points ever played at Roland Garros.
1: Yeah. And, and How's he done there? He's done all right. Yeah, you know, and it's,
0: it, it's <laughs> and it's and you know, and, and I think a lot of kids, a lot of parents, a lot of coaches don't buy into this. But I yeah. also, this is my other thing, and this, this comes from a good friend of mine who I know you know well, Freddie Nielsen as well. If you can't deal with the losses this sport is hard and it's hard to spend so long so when I look at someone like you who has been going now probably traveling the world for almost 24 years as a junior all Mm -hmm. the way through then into college pros how have you been with dealing with losses and how have you managed to to do that so that it hasn't caused so much scar tissue and stress over the years that it's kept you somewhat fresh and, and wanting to play the game
1: yeah. It's one of the most important qualities you can have is how you deal with losses, how you learn from them. I, I probably don't deal with it very well on the day. And then usually the next day I'm a bit more motivated than sometimes even if I win. So I think that's it motivated to get better, to fix whatever it was, or to try and improve something I felt like could have maybe won me the match. So yeah, I think that's the biggest factor is how you deal with losses. You lose all the time out here. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm ranked four in the world in doubles and I've we've won two tournaments this year too. Yeah two tournaments this year. So we've, and we played 17. So, I mean, we've lost 15 times this year um, and I'm ranked four. So like, it's, you know, it's crazy to think that, right. But we lost, we lose all the time. I think one of the other things I remember seeing, I don't know why I remember this, but I think Sam query and don't quote me on this. This is just an absolute uh, guess, but I'm pretty sure he's like a 500 player, you know, he's won as many matches as he's lost. The guys had a unbelievable career, you know, he's beaten world number ones at grand slams multiple times. And, you know, almost made the tour finals and, and singles and all that. And the guy's won as many matches as he's lost. If you think about that, that that's a bit crazy, you know? Um, he's, he's a great friend of mine. He's a great player. And I don't mean any disrespect at all that, but that's just how it is in our sports. If you can't figure out how to learn from the losses and, and get better and almost embrace them in a way, it, it's it's going to be a tough, tough road.
0: But is that something you've always had that perspective on? or Is that something that you've learned through time?
1: I've learned it better because, like you said, I. I was fortunate to be fortunate or unfortunate to be a good junior where I didn't lose very much. I'd go, you know, months and months without losing. So you don't really learn how to lose. And then we didn't lose in college. We were 32 and zero in college as, as college team. And so you don't really learn how to do it until you get, until you start losing a lot. And you know, my first year on tour, all of a sudden you lose, I'm losing week after week, after week, sometimes yeah. without winning at all. And that's when it becomes difficult. And that's where kind of, you figure out, whether this is for you or not, if you can take those losses and take some positive from it and improve and, and not just kind of let it wreck you a little bit, you know?
0: And was it the losses that eventually move you to doubles? What, 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 when did that happen? Why did that happen? Why did you knock the knock it on the head with the singles and, and start becoming a, a doubles doubles only player?
1: yeah no it wasn't the losses at all it was just my body um i yeah. i knew in 2016 at the end of 2016 i played over 100 matches at a great year i got to my career high in singles and made the masters in doubles and i just knew that if i had another one of those types of years that was probably going to be it you know i couldn't train the way that i wanted to to keep up with everything and, oh. and just the amount of tennis and i knew i wanted to keep playing i was i was enjoying it i knew i never gave doubles a full shot i wasn't one of these players or i'm not one of these players who was good enough to be one of the top players in the world in doubles without actually putting you know full dedication to it uh I, you know some guys were able to do that while playing singles that that wasn't me i wasn't good enough to do that so um and i knew i didn't want to leave the sport without f- seeing what i could do in doubles because i felt like my my skill set was very you know it, it fit very well with the game and i felt like i could do pretty well and so uh made a decision sort of similar to the college one like it was just staring me in the face and at the end of that year that i was going to play a little bit more in 2017 but that was you know when. Uh, you know, when I felt like I I was going to play what I could get into, I wasn't going to add any more tournaments to the schedule. And when kind of my ranking disparity became too much, that was going to be it.
0: And what a lot of the doubles guys I've had on again, you know, Joe, um, Sam Qureshi, you know, there's been, there's been quite a few, Freddie, Freddie Nielsen, quite a few of the guys that have come on. And I always speak to them about this because uh, I guess doubles was my thing a little bit as well. Getting the right partnership seems the key. And, and, it, and, I had a little look back 2018, you finished 36 in the world. And that year you had, okay. a, you had 11 different partners in that year. Now, since 2018, from what I could see, you've had three partners, one of them at the Olympics in Francis yeah. tier 4 So we don't count that because that wasn't a choice. Austin Krychek, I believe you played a tournament with at the start of a year in Melbourne, maybe start
1: of a year, maybe. Once no, that show. that actually was also not a choice because that was at the ATP Cup, so you had to play with somebody you from your own country. So, so yeah,
0: <laughs> so 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 you haven't had a choice. So in the last three years, you've had the same, you've had the same partner, and yeah. and you've gone from 36 to number four in the world. You've won two Grand Slams, three Grand Slam finals. You know, it's obviously worked you know so i guess i want to get into your partnership with joe because i love that partnership you know i told joe this as well for me you know you guys well your ranking suggested as well you you are right up there being the best team if not the best team in the world how and why do more doubles players not find that consistent partnership or is it that it's such a sweet spot when you do that it's so difficult to find
1: yeah look i think there's no question that's that's the goal is to play with somebody consistently i mean in 2018 i was supposed to play with a guy named brian baker who i don't know if you know that name at all but he was a great player we great played, player yeah we we really made the final junior, junior wimbledon together one of my oldest tennis friends and i mean the guy's body just didn't cooperate with him yep. unfortunately and So so remember that yeah i was he, he actually came to my house we did two weeks of training we were all set to go and really give it a shot as two old friends you know trying to really make a make some noise in the doubles world he was just stopped playing singles as well and you know he called me on December 24th saying look I I just can't my back's not it's not cooperating and he's never played since and so now I'm stuck in the end of December where everyone else is sort of with a partner and I I don't have anyone so that's how 11 partners in 2018 came about was the fact that you know I was set to play with somebody who I was really looking forward to and it just didn't work and so that was a, a year of a struggle but you know kind of like with the losses, if that taught me anything, it taught me that I'd never want to do that again. I will stick in a partnership, you know, as long as I possibly can until, you know, it doesn't really at all work anymore. And, um, at the end of the year, I was looking for a few partners. I got to admit Joe was not at the top of my list. I didn't really know him. Um, because he just kind of come on the scene pretty new, but after nothing else was going to work out or the few others that I had in mind, weren't going to work out. I, I, I said, yeah, sure. Let's do it. I'd seen him play. We'd played a couple of times and, um, But right from the get-go, I felt like this was something that was going to be a good thing for me. Um, I think, you know, what do you look for in a partner? First and foremost, you look for somebody that you get along with. You know, you get along with them. You, you can. I always say that the thing that I can do for my partners, if I can make him play his best tennis, that makes my job so much easier. So that's got nothing to do with forehands and backhands. That's got to do with can I say the right thing? Can I act the right way? Can I be a good partner? And I think it was easy to be a good partner for joe front, right from the beginning um we could yep. figure out all the ten, all the tennis stuff later <laughs> on and we we've, we've st- we're still doing that but uh, that that's the that's the thing that i think is the most important thing and, and he could do the same thing for me
0: who's the leader in your partnership
1: i mean i would say we both are in different ways but i mean me being the one that's more experienced and have been out here a lot longer and and all that I, i'd say i'd probably take that role a bit more um yeah, there's certain things that he likes to do more than me, as far as maybe some scouting and some different things. But as far as the encore stuff, I would say it's on me.
0: Yeah, because that's that's one. I think when I saw you guys going together, I would I wondered whether you would be a bit sameish. Yeah, in 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 terms of your styles you know, in terms of your personalities, you know, in terms of, you know, sometimes there is that one that takes, takes the lead. Now you've, you've completely proven me wrong on that, you know, but it's just quite interesting to know how that dynamic works.
1: It's something that I've had to work on and I've had to really find in myself is to be a bit more of the energy and emotional leader. Cause that's not, it doesn't come very natural to me. So it's, you know, everyone has to make improvements and that's probably the thing that I've had to work on and improve the most. And uh, you know, but it's, fun to improve like i said before and it's fun when you work on something and you actually see it working it's kind of it's kind of like it wants you to keep going it makes you want to keep going you know
0: and how do you guys manage because as as doubles players you're traveling so much and playing so many tournaments and then I would imagine the practice weeks—you've got a home that you want to go back to. Mm-hmm. Joel's got a home he wants to go back to. You're in different continents. How how do you manage that time to get those blocks to be able to work together as a team?
1: I mean, we. I mean, we we travel so much and we see each other so much on the road, and we do like we said, we you lose. So there are weeks where you take an early loss, and you you know, you have a whole week to practice and work on something, or it's a, it's a long trip. I and mean, we're on a, we're on a, what, we're on a Paris week. Uh, we're on like about a five week trip right now, four week trip right now, even okay. now at this point. So, I mean, we have these time periods where we can get on the court where it doesn't have to be on the off time. I think one of the things that we do pretty well actually, is we don't spend every waking moment together. You know, we don't, we try to take our time away so that when we do come on the court together, whether it's for practice or a match, it's, it's still enjoyable. It's still fun. It's still fresh and all that. So I think it's good for us that we're actually not, you know, together yeah. all the time.
0: Well, it makes sense. And 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 talking of, of relationships, the other one, I guess you've you've lived your life on the tour. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, so it's it's one thing to grow a relationship with a with a partner, a doubles partner, but it's another thing to grow relationships with with friends or develop mm-hmm. relationships with love, with partners, life partners. You know, it's a very challenging thing for someone and the reason I'm speaking to you on this Rajiv is I guess you're someone who has lived your life on the tennis tour. So it's not a very normal, normal world. How have you been able to develop that side of your life as well whilst traveling so many weeks?
1: Yeah, it's definitely hard. And I think it's something that would probably the hardest part of the job. I mean, I'm lucky enough. I have been married now for almost six years and you know my wife gets travel with me a decent amount which I think is a, a big part of
0: yeah
1: um keeping that kind of relationship but it's it's definitely hard it's not normal like you said people don't realize you know they think we go to these wonderful cities which we do but it's not for not for a holiday you know it's for work and um the other difficult part of this job is that you never know what's going to happen you never know you know if you're going to lose on Monday or if you're going to lose on Friday so you can't plan on anything you can't really plan to do anything you just kind of have to be really good about going with the flow and so i think um yeah just trying to be as open as you can with you know how you're thinking how you're feeling and and uh and just like anything else man you just do the best you can uh, and i think yeah. that seems to usually work out as good as it's going to
0: i would imagine it's easier to get your wife going to new york melbourne paris london than it would be getting her to go to Monaster to play a futures event in Tunisia, you know?
1: <laughs> yeah, that, that would be the case. And fortunately for me, I haven't had to do that in quite some time. So,
0: And you've been so good with your time, Rajiv, you know, it really was when I spoke to Joe a few weeks ago and, you know, we mentioned your name. I thought I would be so good because I think you're, you, you have such an understated way about you. But when you analyze your your career in numbers, it really is incredible, you know. And I think you know, you're, you're someone that so many people in our sport can learn from, you know. And I, I was so I was so excited to to speak to you. So a big thank you for coming on. Uh, I appreciate that. What does the future now hold for Ajiv Ram on the on on the playing side first?
1: Um. Well, on the playing side, I mean, in the immediate future, we've got to play a tournament here in Paris coming up, followed by the Tour Finals in Turin, which we're really looking forward to. Um, you know, I, I take things kind of as they come. And I think, you know, we... I'm in a great situation right now. I enjoy playing doubles. I enjoy playing with Joe a lot. And I think we've done... We've put ourselves in a position to really um, compete for some of the biggest titles in, the, in our sport, which, I mean, what can be more motivating than that, you know? So I think it's just a matter of keeping myself healthy and, and keep continuing to put ourselves in those positions because to be honest, I mean, there's, there's not much like playing a grand slam final or, or, or a master's event final or anything like that. And it's just, is something that, yeah, it'll never get old. So I'm going to keep doing that as long as I possibly can.
0: So are we going to see Ram Salisbury in 2022?
1: Yes, absolutely. We've, we've had that, dis- that discussion took about four seconds after uh, after the U S open. So. <laughs>
0: Brilliant. Because the one, yeah. and, and and to the podcast listeners, I know I've said this before, but it, it always sticks into my mind. The Brian brothers who um, you'll know very well, I, I'll never forget what they said, you know, in this tennis world is the, the year's end and then everyone splits up. We stick together. And then we win everything in the first six months of the year (laughs) because the teams are trying to get used to each other again. And then the last six months people catch us up and, you know, we maybe don't do quite as well. And that's been a cycle that's gone. So maybe you guys can have that little kickstart. You've done well in Australia the last two years. You know, I think having that consistency of partnership is, is, is vital and certainly shines through at the start of the year as well.
1: Yeah. Let's see. I mean, look, there's a lot of good teams out there. A lot of good, uh, Good players, I have no idea what the shakeups are going to be like this year. But you know, we're we have a couple huge tournaments coming up here. But yeah, like you said, we've we played great in Australia last couple of years, winning it and then making a final. So we're looking forward to starting the year again with well,
0: Joe. Well, good luck the the rest of the year life after tennis. What's that got? What's, what's that got for you? Is that something you've thought of? Do you see yourself as a tennis coach? Do you see yourself going on the the other side of the mic and, and, and commentating where any, had any thoughts on that?
1: Yeah. Good question on that. I, I, if I'm honest, I don't see myself coaching on tour. I mean, I've traveled, as you said, you know, my whole life almost. So I, I, I need to give that a break just for my own sanity. Um, Other side of the mic would be fun. Uh, I, I would really enjoy that. Uh, I don't know how easy those jobs are to get, but I think, uh, it's something that I feel like I could be decent at. I love the sport. I want to stay in touch in some way. And, and, you know, I love watching it. I love playing it. So I think I could actually bring something valuable to the table and, uh, to some, some people. So I think, uh, that would be awesome, but staying in touch with the sport would be in the cards for sure.
0: I would imagine your tennis CV has given you a little bit of a chance of, of doing that, Rajiv. But are you now ready for our quickfire round? Absolutely. Your favourite Grand Slam?
1: Uh, Australian Open.
0: Singles or doubles? Ooh. Doubles. ATP Cup or Davis Cup?
1: Well, uh, I- I can answer that for you in a couple of weeks. I've never played Davis Cup before. So right now I have to no go way. with ATP Cup. Yeah, this coming up, Davis Cup will be my first, my, my debut, let's say. So I'm going to go with ATP Cup right now.
0: Oh, amazing. Well, I've got I've got your captain coming on the podcast in the next couple of weeks as well. So okay. we'll have to ask him how you're behaving. Uh, the the PTPA or not?
1: Yes, PTPA. Fore-
0: forehand or backhand?
1: <laughs> forehand by a mile.
0: <laughs> Medical timeout or not?
1: Um, yes, but with some alterations.
0: What would those alterations be?
1: Uh, a time limit, some, something where we're not seeing the last point was played 10 minutes ago.
0: Or maybe you have to have an injury to have one.
1: Something. Yeah. (laughs) I'm not sure what they are, but altering the current issue with it. Yeah.
0: Net codes or not?
1: On serve. I assume you're talking. On serve. Uh, I would say, yes, I'd keep it the way that it is.
0: College or pro? College. Roger or Rafa? Roger. Peter Andre. Pete. <laughs> what, what's one rule change you would have in
1: tennis? I would let fans come in without having to wait. Like that, the first game. Basically, if they, if they show up a match and they can't come in after the first game, somehow make it so where they could they could come in and not have to wait three games before the first time they can come in.
0: And who should our next guest be on control the controllables?
1: Mm, that's a good question. I would say you should get somebody. A good friend of mine. He speaks well. He's been on the tour for a long time. Rohan Bopana.
0: That would be he would be a great one. Rohan is a is a great guy, you know. So yeah. I know Rohan pretty well, but if you could send him a little message. Just, sure. to, just to give that little bit more weight, then we'll we'll get Rohan on. He's he's a he's a great guy to have on. Rajiv, thank you. Yeah, uh, I mean, thank uh, you. you. know that was that was an absolute pleasure for for me to have that conversation. It's a pleasure for everyone listening. I'm sure. You know, you are whether you like it or not. You're now a Brit. You know, you, you've <laughs> got you're, you're in our team now, and you know we're wishing you the best of luck in Paris and in Turin, and then onwards into 2022. Keep up the great work. You guys are a pleasure Thanks, to watch. Thanks a lot for having me. It was great. So as always, I've got Vicky next to me and what a lovely guy he was.
2: Oh, so lovely. But I just had a feeling he was going to be lovely. I don't know why, just watching him play and how he carries himself. He just seems like a really genuine, lovely guy Um, on the court and it turns out he is off as well.
0: Yeah, and absolutely. And I think probably one of my big things from this episode and and, and look, that's been a lot of our, our guests that we've had. I think maybe growing up or even a few years ago, sport was at the stage where you had to be... The thought process was that you have to be a bit of an arse to be good <laughs> and you have to, you know, not be so nice to people and you have to be single-minded and you have to be all of these... Ruthless, driven. Yeah, that those those traits. And, and, and I think, you know, one of our big things we talk about at the Soto Tennis Academy all the time is, you know, be respectful, be kind, be a good person and, and to have Rajiv... Come on and and talk to us in the way that he that he talked to us. He's he's been going for a long time, you know. He he very clearly is well liked on the tour. He is and he is a lovely guy, and he's had an incredible career. You know, there's not many players to be as high as 56 in the world in singles and four in the world in doubles, winning four Grand Slams. Um, a real treat.
2: But how interesting that he's started winning Grand Slams at the age of 34. Thirty-five. He's world number four in the world at 37, as you said. It's amazing, really.
0: Yeah, and, and I guess the, the big thing that comes from me on that, and I, I think this would be a big message to parents, to coaches, to players out there, listen to the story about how he, he he was brought up. You know, there wasn't an immense amount of pressure put on him. It wasn't about trying to create a professional tennis player. It was about playing tennis for fun and and if you've genuinely got that backing from your parents and and the important people around you on that then there's isn't this scar tissue that builds and that then that then leads to the ability to have longevity of career and 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 I guess that would be just something that I think is an absolute imperative message that people take because how many people do we see at age 9 10 11 12 everyone's obsessing over every minute that they're on court
2: and it's so serious
0: yeah so serious you know they can't do this they can't do that because that's not going to help them Be do that and someone else is playing in, in, in that amount of time and I, we need to play this and we can't play other sports and we can't go to that party you know all of these things it's just you know yes work hard Yes, have some structure, of course, but please don't forget the importance of our kids, our children having fun and playing the sport for that reason. And and we see it, that the consequences will come later, you know, and the consequence of the incredible upbringing that Rajiv's clearly had has then lent for him to then go on at 37, still going and, and, and having the best years of his career right now.
2: And still enjoying it, as he said. He still says he just has fun out there. I watched his quarterfinal match, him and Joe, play at the US Open against Purcell and Ebden. It was amazing. Oh, it was so exciting. It went down to tiebreak in the third set. They saved four match points. Unbelievable tennis. Just crazy from both pairs. And he was just so calm. He was just... He looked so calm, cool, collected, just totally in control it was really interesting to say actually that's not how he feels (laughs) inside but just how he carries himself I love watching them play
0: yeah and have it in Salisbury Salisbury's the same and I think when we had Joe Salisbury on the show a few weeks ago he spoke about they'd lost first round the event leading into the US Open but no no panic you know get back to the the practice court do the right things they trust in each other Uh, they're an incredible pair They've had the second most successful year on the ATP Tour this year as a doubles team. We got the exclusive. They've agreed now to definitely play in 2022. And and I think there's only good things for them to look forward to over the next 12 months as well.
2: And his first Davis Cup appearance to look forward to. I can't believe that. I guess the Bryan brothers have dominated for quite a long time in doubles um, U.S. team, but how exciting!
0: Yeah, amazing. And I mentioned just my, my last thing because I don't think there's a whole lot else to say. That you know, ultimately, I think you you all would have thoroughly enjoyed that episode. You know, and we got to see Rajiv as he is. You know, the message is very clear on our side. You know, have fun, be a good person, and you won't go too far wrong. Uh, I mentioned that I've got his cap- which some of you might have put together as Marty Fish coming on coming on the show soon I did speak to Marty yesterday he he has had a couple of little illnesses over the last couple of weeks so that has been delayed a little bit longer don't worry he's absolutely adamant that he's going to come on and speak to the, speak to control the controllables bring his incredible story to you guys if you've not watched the Netflix show on Marty Fish do and and we will look to delve into all of those areas as well but please be patient that one's going to be a little bit longer than we first expected,
2: and as you've probably seen, we've got nice new fancy artwork now for our podcast with Dan, your lovely face on it as well.
0: It's a little bit. I'll be honest; it's a bit embarrassing. <laughs> um it, it wasn't just so the listeners. You could have probably know. brushed your hair. <laughs> I did. I didn't push for this. I didn't push to have my ugly mug on on the cover art. But we were told very clearly by people in the team and the podcast experts. That they needed to be the branding <laughs> of myself on there, so I, I I'm a little bit embarrassed, but hopefully it's come out all right. They could have at least yeah airbrushed me a little bit, but <laughs> but that's okay. That's not what the podcast is about. It's about so many more things. And as I said at the start, a big thank you to you all. It's it's gone incredibly well, and we we love having you all as, as our listeners and being part of our community. But yeah, one one shout out I would like to give on the on the pod art. Is is Lara from Seven Love? She's done it. She's done an amazing job. I know she listens to the podcasts as well. So a big, big shout out, Lara. Thank, Thank you, you, Laura, for all of your all of your hard work on that, and all of the hard work that the team's putting in behind the scenes to to bring these fantastic episodes to you guys. Uh, we will be back next week. I believe next week is Lucy All. Uh, we're fighting hard to get lots of female guests coming on. I can assure you, it's it's not because we're not trying. There's just been a little bit more more challenges bringing them on. Lucy brings a whole world of experience in the tennis in the tennis world from different perspectives as player, coach, and now commentator. And I know she's going to be a fantastic guest for you guys. And as our promise always is, lots more to come. But until next time, I'm Dan Kiernan, and we are control the controllables.